so I reiterate here, the bill is dead. The story of this great city is about the years before this night. Hong Kong. I am Andy Curtin. I'm here with Mubek. That's all, folks. Mabubani. Yeah, that's me. It's Vivek Mabubani here. If you want to find me online, I'm at Andy Curtin on everything. What are, what are you uh, selling at Funny people? Vivek, uh, sometimes with letter M. If you don't want to find me, look for the other Mohammed. you got to be the only Vivek. I feel like Vivek will get them there. Yeah, I think Doing so. Doing yeah, yeah. comedy. If you're in the Hong Kong location, the IP address will let people know, yeah, you're in Hong Kong. That's the only Vivek you want to care It'll about. It'll be Vivek or Jeffrey Andrews. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're the police, then yeah, either way it works. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe. And if you want to get more and get even better, awesome episodes, you can check out our Patreon at uh, hoho pod, patreon.com hoho pod. Uh, we, uh, we've had two recent subscribers, Kareem and Sahail Kalia. Kareem's a really good buddy of mine, so yeah. thanks for that, guys. I don't slur my words in the Patreon edition. I slurred over here for the free one. Yeah, and we don't put any facts in the well, free one. Yeah. Uh, and we're putting out a bonus episode every Thursday, so you can check that out. And today's guest, I am super excited to have on. We've got Professor Ben Cowling from HKU. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. Nice to see you. Um, so, Ben is the Division Head of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at HKU and a co-director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Infectious Disease, Epidemiology and Control. I think Man, I got that, all of that out. Does that fit on one name card? And it, I, don't, I, can't, yeah. I can't even say your last name. Yeah, you can't do mine with all that stuff. Oh, yeah. sure, yeah. Credentials, no problem. So I bet you're a man in demand these days. Yeah, I'm really busy for the last year. So it's actually about the one-year anniversary of... Uh, when we first started working on COVID and learning what was going on. Uh, if you remember in January 2020, it wasn't quite clear what was happening in Wuhan, whether infections were spreading or not. And so about a year ago, I went up to Beijing with some colleagues. We looked at their data, worked together with them. And uh, at that point, it was pretty clear. And it was around that, that time that, that China CDC announced that it really was spreading. And uh, and we helped to do some of the analysis that really confirmed how fast it was spreading. So what do you talk, January 2020? Yeah, January 2020. It was, I think, uh, one of our big publications on, on COVID came out January 29th, 2020. So almost a year ago. And, uh, and that set the scene for then understanding what was going to happen in the following months. We kind of warned the rest of the world that this was coming. And initially, you remember, in Europe, in the US, wasn't a lot of in interest. There were, you know, is it really going to come? We haven't seen any cases yet. And then all of a sudden, by March and then April, things really heated up in northern Italy and then in, in parts of, parts, other parts of Europe and then the U.S. as well. And then the rest is, is, uh, is what we've experienced in the last year. Uh, really an enormous impact, what we couldn't imagine. So as someone that spent a huge portion of your life, I assume, looking at infectious diseases and mm. the history of infectious diseases, what's it like, that moment, where you're like, oh, oh, crap. Yeah. Did someone come out like a really Do you remember quote? that? Do you remember looking at it and being yeah. like, this, so, is the, this is one of those yeah. bad ones? So I go back a couple of years. I was doing a, a project for the World Health Organization looking at how we might deal with a flu pandemic if there was another flu pandemic <laughs> in the future. Like, What kind of things would people do? Like, Would we recommend people to wear masks or not? Would we recommend schools to close or not? Would we recommend people to work from home? All those kind of issues. And we came up with this report and published it towards the end of 2019. And at the time we were writing, I remember thinking it's not very likely that we're going to get this kind of severe pandemic where we have to throw the kitchen sink at things. And then January 2020, we get even worse than the worst flu pandemic we could have imagined. And we absolutely have to throw everything we've got at it. You've seen the kind of lockdowns that have been done in other parts of the world. It was unthinkable. In the report that we wrote for severe flu pandemics, we didn't even conceive of the idea of staying at home for months. It just wasn't on the list of things to do. You know, there were school closures. Okay, we've done that before. There was people working at home. Okay, fair enough. Wearing masks. We didn't have an item about just locking down the entire city for a month or two months. It, yeah, it, it's Where, unthinkable can, at that can time. Can anybody download this report? I'm very curious. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, you yeah. Totally yeah, you can find like, it. You can find it. It's called uh, World Health Calling Organization. Report. My oh. name's there. World Health Organization Guidelines on Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions for Pandemic Influenza. Dot .pdf. Yeah, dot .pdf. <laughs> <laughs> and as a layperson, I, I would guess that maybe this COVID 
is less deadly but more infectious than you're anticipating. Is that right? Uh, it's actually about the worst we could imagine. So if you get an infection which is really severe, like SARS in 2003, actually that kind of infection doesn't spread so easily. If the people who get infected all need to go to hospital, then you can focus on stopping spread in hospitals and you can do a lot of good. That's how we got rid of SARS in 2003. COVID is actually almost always mild. The fatality rate is below 1%. So almost everybody is actually not even needing to go to hospital. They're in the community, really difficult to find. And that means really difficult to stop transmission. It's still worse than flu. It's about 10, 20 times worse than flu. Um, and that, that's why we're so worried about it, because if COVID's allowed to spread without, without any control... Uh, we'll, we'll, America. <coughs> yeah, we'll have a lot of problems. <laughs> As you've seen, I mean, not in America, in Wuhan, in the early days. They had about 5% of the population infected in Wuhan, and their hospitals were almost collapsing under the pressure. And they were just 5%. And they were almost collapsing under the pressure before the... <laughs> yeah. So, I've so been right. to mainland Chinese public so hospitals you before. You have to do something because if you don't stop it at 5%, it's going to go to 10% and then 20% and then 40%. And the hospitals just can't cope. And that's when things get really, really seriously, seriously bad if hospitals can't treat patients that need to be treated. Because uh, we know the mortality rate is pretty low. But if you can't get hospital care, if the hospital runs out of oxygen, like it did just recently in Brazil, that's really not a scenario you want to experience. Yeah, I mean, they, I, I remember, this is kind of jumping around a little bit, but I remember early on when uh, when New York got bad, when New York was kind of the epicenter for it in mm. America, and people were like, oh, these hospitals are maxed out, there's mm. body bags and all that. It's like, well, things have gotten much worse since that point. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think New York, there was a particular problem because they were discharging patients from hospitals into elderly homes without testing them first. And um. it turns out that was not a good idea. Yeah. So there were like 20,000 deaths in probably April of 2020 in New York, many of them in elderly homes because of outbreaks that resulted from maybe older people discharged from hospital. So they were in hospital for some reason. They didn't necessarily need to stay there. So they were discharged to elderly homes. But because they'd been in hospital when there were other COVID. patients there with COVID cases, then those elderly actually got infected in the hospital and then took it to the elderly home. And that was really not something to be repeated. But you're right, the, the, the case numbers now, the mortality numbers recently have been similar to, to what, was, what it was like in, in Italy and in New York and a few other places. So it's really the, the second wave is just as bad as that, that first wave was. And the hospitals, they must just be getting creamed. I think they're used to it now compared to earlier, but they just don't have the manpower, don't have the beds. And then, as I said, in Brazil, they ran out of oxygen. I mean, that's, that's really not a good thing when the people are in hospital mainly because they need oxygen. So if the hospital runs out, suddenly that's a lot of patients who needed oxygen and can't get it. Um, it's a nightmare. It's really, really difficult. That's what we want to avoid. That's why we're trying so hard to stop COVID from spreading. I mean, um, what, what are the things that people can do in general? I mean, we, we're doing face masks. I mean, we haven't read the report yet, but any like quick tips, the top three things you got to do? Like, uh, so yeah, there's, there's some really good three C's from Japan. So avoid crowding, avoid close contact. And I always forget the third C. And avoid, avoid the Chinese. No. <laughs> Crowding, close contact and confined settings. So oh. indoor, like like tight indoor spaces with yeah. not very good ventilation. <laughs> um, avoid staying there. I so know you're wearing a mask right now, yeah, by the way. Wearing, I, I, I always wear a mask. I'm such an idiot. I yeah. walked up and tried to shake his yeah. hand. And I don't normally shake hands, yeah. but, you know, you just sort of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> so what you're saying is that the, the three C's are everything that is Hong Kong apartments. Exactly. Now, Hong Kong is <laughs> a really difficult place to, to stop the spread. So if we think about where COVID would prefer to spread, where it wouldn't prefer to spread, Hong Kong's like its favorite place in the world. Yeah, yeah well, Because Mon everybody Kok, lives on top of each other. Hong Kong's the densest place yeah. on earth, right? Yeah. And then you, you think about some other parts of the world where people live, you know, in the the Tibetan plateau or something, it's just not going to spread there because people are so far apart. They're, they're all spaced out. But in Hong Kong, everyone lives on top of each other. So it's really, really difficult for us here. And we've seen how difficult it is to stop the fourth wave with all the measures the government's using. It's just really tough because it spreads so efficiently in Hong Kong with crowding, with clo enclosed spaces, with lots of close contact between people. So you ask what we can do? Yeah. Avoid spending so much time in close contact with other people. So for people that can work at home, maybe work at home. If, you're, if you can stay at home in the evenings, try and stay at home a bit more. Don't go out so much. I know it's difficult for some people. Um, and in general, just reduce 
your contact with other people at the moment. Yeah. When yeah, the numbers yeah. come down to zero, it's okay to to, yeah, to, yeah. to rest a bit, but to relax a bit. But uh, right now, it's really a critical moment. And we've been tracking how much of this kind of behavior people have been doing in, in the past year. And right now, we're not doing as well at avoiding social contacts as we had been Before. maybe in July. Yeah, in July. Think, think, yeah. How do you track that? Well, we just do surveys. We do, we, every week, we, we call maybe 500 people or 1,000 people and ask them how they've been behaving in the past week. Have you been staying at home? Have you been wearing a mask? Have you been washing your hands? Uh, have you been going gone to, to work? Peel, going to Peel Street. Yeah, yeah, going to restaurants, whatever. You know, all those kind of behaviors. And we get percentages, and then we track them over time. And we've seen in July, uh, people stayed at home a lot. In December, January, not so much. Yeah. I mean, a bit. They're, they're making an effort, but but I think people are tired of the social distancing measures, which we understand. Absolutely. Also, because July is stinking hot outside. Yeah, you don't want to go out anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so the good thing with this advice is it's going to help a lot of uh, boyfriends in Hong Kong because what's happening is Chinese New Year this year is clashing with Valentine's Day. So you're kind of stuck like, do I stay home with my mom? Do I go to the girlfriend? What do I do, right? And now you're like, hey, social distancing. Both of you get lost. Yeah, I ran I can't away from you guys. <laughs> yeah, for I, your sake. I yeah. heard you raise a really interesting point on the uh, was it o- o- O&P, OTMP podcast. Um, you were talking about how the uh, infectiousness from different people drastically differs. Mm. So actually, w- what is it like? One in Five people, well, four and five people really aren't that infectious. Right. Probably won't infect anyone. That's what we've seen in Hong Kong. I mean, if, you, if they tried really hard, they might be able to. But what we've seen in Hong Kong and in other parts of the world as well is that most people with COVID are really not very contagious for whatever reason. They're just not very contagious. That's a Hong infected. Kong thing. We just don't want to share. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Mine. I mean, I, mean, I, I earned this it. Is my Part of it would be yeah. behavior. I mean, if you put them in a you know, in a, in a small room with someone else for hours and hours, maybe they still transmit it. I know, with a bit and you dance But because, dance I mean, some it. people are, are just So is that because themselves. of a different way the disease manifests, do you think? Or do you think it's just because they're not giving it the opportunity? I, it's, based it's, on it's, a it's a mixture. It's a mixture of things. Mixture, so right. some, some people are just keep to themselves anyway. And then in some people, the, the infection doesn't take hold as strongly as in some other people. So they have less virus. Maybe their immune system's a little bit better so it can start fighting the infection more quickly and keep the viral load to a lower level. And if you've got less virus in your lungs, you're going to be breathing out less virus and, and then less contagious. We don't completely understand why, but it's a phenomenon that we've seen again and again. Many people who are infected just don't pass on infection. It's just and then a minority yeah. do actually. Yeah. They, have, you know, I, they don't know who they are, yeah. but they, there's been people in Hong Kong who've really really been very successful in transmitting infection to to the people around them uh, we don't understand what exactly the characteristics are of those super spreaders or those super spreading events that have occurred but it's happened again and again i know it seems according to the government it's your net worth the <laughs> lower your net worth the more you're going to spread it to people apparently <laughs> how much you like ballroom dancing yeah that as well um so just taking a step back a little bit you you're a long-term resident in hong kong um, when did you move out here? I came here in 2004 after SARS. And actually, the reason I came was because the government decided to invest in experts to do research on infectious diseases like SARS. So in 2003, we had SARS in Hong Kong. There wasn't a lot of expertise locally in learning about how SARS was spreading, how to control it. Not really a lot of local scientists to advise the government. So they went overseas to to Europe and the US to get expert advice. And they thought maybe if there was going to be another SARS, they should have a local team because then you've got people on the ground, you can call up, the government can say, let's have an expert committee, which they do now for for COVID, you know, of, of those experts who can give them advice on what to do. And in 2004, I came as part of the investment the government made, so myself and a few other colleagues, to start doing research on And you only had to wait 17 years. Yeah, I mean, at the time, <laughs> we, we were worried. Actually, in 2004, there was a, a mini SARS outbreak. There was an escape from a laboratory in China and a, and a few cases. And then from time to time, we've worked on other outbreaks. We worked on pandemic influenza in 2009, H7N9, influenza H7N9 in China in 2015. So we've been busy. There's been a lot of outbreaks in the region. And we've always been preparing for another SARS. Uh, we never really thought that... There, there quite would be another SARS, but now that's exactly what we've got. We've got COVID, which is SARS coronavirus 2. So on, on that point, there was a really interesting article from an epidemiologist in uh, New York Magazine, not saying that this has been caused by a lab leak, but simply raising the point that there's really no conclusive evidence whether this came from nature or it came from a lab, and then pointed out that, you know, uh, an enormous amount of research is done into coronaviruses in Wuhan, and even the head of that lab ha- 
thought that maybe it had come from her lab and that fact alone that she suspected it should warrant, you know, some yeah. questions to be asked. Do, do you, is that a red herring? Do you think they're... So, I, it, it's really not clear. I think the likelihood is that it was coming from a natural origin in some way. Maybe some, some people caught bats uh, and got infected from catching the bats. Maybe the bats infected a small mammal... Like a, like a civet cat in, in 2003 that, that, that started the SARS outbreak. And then the civet cat that had COVID was caught by a trapper, taken to a live animal market and eaten by someone, and they, they got COVID, and that's how it all kicked off. Uh, there's been a lot of surveillance done on bat coronaviruses in China and in Asia in general uh, by a number of uh, laboratories. So the laboratory in Wuhan, the laboratory in Hong Kong University, the laboratory in Singapore, collecting all of these libraries of bat coronaviruses. And they've been looking at them to see if there was anything similar to COVID. And actually, they haven't found anything that's that similar to COVID, which is kind of surprising because what you'd expect to see is some maybe some similar bat viruses, like almost the same. And then you can just imagine it making a, a final last jump into COVID. Maybe you don't catch that, but you catch all the the ancestors, you know, the grandfather and the great-grandfather. We haven't really seen that, which is a little bit surprising. And at the same time, there have been warnings over the past decade about laboratories doing what's called gain-of-function research. So there's this idea in virology. We got a virus like an HIV or flu or SARS or another coronavirus. What makes it successful? Can we make it worse? That's loss of function. Or can we make it better? Gain so of function. make it like more infectious. Yeah, make it more infectious or, or, or more adaptable to humans. Like what would it need to do? And the reason to do that for scientific purposes is to then be able to say, okay, if that bat coronavirus got these particular genetic mutations like A and B and C, then we really need to be careful because that, at that point it could jump to humans and cause a pandemic. So let's figure out what's A, what's B, what's C in the lab and do some animal studies and, and figure it all out. And scientists around the world have been warning that this kind of research should not really be done because if a successful virus was created and then managed to escape, then we could have a global pandemic. Yeah. And so that, that's where this, this idea is coming from that COVID could have got out of a lab, that maybe in a lab somewhere they were messing about with viruses and they made a very successful coronavirus and it jumped out. But no, no one's ever prove that to be the case it's just a hypothesis uh and i don't think any laboratory would admit to having done that now anyway so we may never know but my guess is it's most likely covid has come from a are natural there, are origin are there any other warnings that we should like take lessons from like this was a good warning like maybe we shouldn't be doing this kind of research is there any other thing that's like borderline uh covid kind of style i, I think it, it it does highlight the real need for surveillance so we can pick up things as early as possible and actually the, the the chinese succeeded in that during sars in 2003 they really didn't know what what people were infected with when they had pneumonia in hospitals um since sars they kind of learned from that and developed this new surveillance system so if people get pneumonia they really try hard to figure out what it is in case it's something like a new sars and that system picked up covid in wuhan in in early 2020 that system is called a surveillance for pneumonia of unknown etiology and it was a creation over the last 15 years by the chinese government so they did find it pretty early um and and that's helped us because the earlier you can identify there's something new going around the quicker you can respond to it but having said that outside of China that the world still didn't react that quickly and looking back maybe thinking about a future pandemic maybe countries are going to be on their toes a little bit more to be aware of the, the possibility that, that this kind of virus could be spreading uh, we've seen New Zealand been very successful in keeping the virus out for almost all of the last year uh, I think that that wouldn't necessarily be possible in other parts of the world but they could try harder but could we use other references? Like Taiwan's done a really good job mm -hmm. with the whole thing. I mean, yeah. I have friends yeah. over there. Unlike who New party. Zealand, then are just living in fields. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, true. <laughs> Taiwan's also kind of very densely populated as well yeah. in many places. I mean, because uh, I have friends over there who are like, doing comedy shows now. They're doing open mic nights. Oh, my God. Like, oh, Dude, they had arena shows hurts. even early last year. Yeah, it hurts. It really hurts. It's brutal. Yeah, yeah it's brutal for it's us. Not, they've done enough. a really good job of yeah. keeping COVID out. I mean, they, they, they stopped flights very early on. And then they've got the 14-day quarantine for people coming into Taiwan that's, that's always been there. And uh, they've been really successful. When they have had local cases, they've acted very quickly to, to stop it from getting any, any further, stop it from getting out of control. And so that's really a model for the rest of the world. But of course, Thailand, Taiwan's an island. New Zealand's kind of island country. Other parts of the world, when they've got a lot of land borders and they're really dependent on cross-border trade, like in Europe, yeah. it'd be difficult. 
Yeah, true. It's hard to just suddenly shut borders and like stop everything with that. I mean, the Hong Kong Island could have been great. It's just all the Kowloon and new territories guys that screwed us over out there. I, I didn't go I mean, over there. It wasn't me. That's for sure. And even right. before, I wouldn't yeah. risk it. The just chance of a coronavirus being there at any point. I'm never going to Kowloon. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about vaccines a little bit. You know, if you had to choose from the available vaccines, is there is there one that you think is better? Uh, so the Pfizer vaccine that we're going to get in Hong Kong probably end of February looks like the best vaccine particularly for the population to use and uh, one of the things we've got to remember with vaccines there's actually two reasons for people to get vaccinated one reason is to protect themselves so elderly really strongly encourage them to get vaccinated to protect themselves because it's going to like the Pfizer vaccine is going to reduce their chance of of getting serious case of COVID very very substantially um, but the other reason that people get vaccinated is to protect the whole community that's why children get a lot of vaccines when they're born in their first year of life it's not only to protect them but to protect everybody around them and so for covid what we'd like to get is herd immunity through vaccination meaning if enough people in hong kong can get vaccinated with a vaccine that works well enough then we won't have to worry about covid spreading anymore because it just won't be able to on average if we uh, going about our daily lives as normal an infected person with covid would spread to two or three other people and so you get you get increases from from day to day from week to week in case numbers we're doing all the social distancing now so we can stop that from happening vaccines could also be another way to stop that from happening and we can go back to normal but in order to do that we've got to mean that so if one person was spreading to two or three others, we've got to make sure that most of those other people are actually immune because of vaccination. And then so the number to, goes below one. Right, and the number goes below one. So if we've got to reduce that from, say, three to below one, that means we've got to get at least two-thirds of people to be immune. And the way to get two-thirds of people to be immune is maybe give two-thirds of people a, a vaccine which is perfect, gives them total immunity, or maybe give everybody, 100% of people, a vaccine that gives them two-thirds protection. That would have the same impact or maybe something in between. So if we use the Pfizer vaccine, if we can get a high level of coverage, then we'll be able to reach that threshold of, of at least two-thirds of people immune in the population. Maybe some people who are vaccinated, the, the vaccine doesn't work perfectly in those people, but they'll be protected because everybody else around them is also immune. That's the beauty of herd immunity, that even if a vaccine's imperfect, as long as you get a high enough coverage, even the people who haven't been protected uh, or haven't been vaccinated can still be indirectly uh, protected can indirectly benefit from the herd immunity so there was a statistic recently saying that a lot of hong kong people actually don't want to take a vaccine um well, yeah we, we've been looking at that as well said they would like we, we've been like looking at that as well actually it's, it, said no. it's a little bit more complicated no. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a little bit more complicated so we we've been looking at this as well in our surveys so about 20 percent of people that we've talked to on the on these telephone surveys say they don't want to get vaccinated at all about 20% say they definitely want to get vaccinated as soon as they can. And everyone else is somewhere in the middle saying maybe they'll wait and see if things look to be going well, if the vaccines look to be fine, as long as they're not first, you know, wait and see how, how other it's people do. Hong Kong thing again. Yeah, <laughs> wait and see. And then, and then I think most, most likely most of those people will ultimately get vaccinated. But one of the things that I'm concerned about as a, as a public health specialist is if there's some kind of media scare about vaccines, which we have from time to time. So, for example the very frail old person gets vaccinated and then something happens to them the few days later. Yeah, everyone you know, freaks out. But everyone freaks out. The media, yeah. the front page says, oh, you know, the person got this vaccine and then they, they had a stroke were, or something. Yeah, there were some cases in, was it Norway? In Norway, yeah, right. Yeah, they, yeah, they vaccinated yeah, yeah. thousands of frail elderly and then yeah. a few of them passed away in the, the following days, which is not unusual when you have a lot of very frail elderly in nursing homes uh, that they, some of them are in pretty bad shape. But it scares everybody. But how many of, of the people you surveyed were scared because of the news or were just scared or just, I just don't want to do it because the government tells me to do it. Because I, I, yeah. I have a lot of friends who are actually very political about that, that if the government says take this one, they're like, I will not take that one. Yeah, so we've got to be a little bit careful as well. The government's in a difficult position because it wants to persuade people to get vaccinated. That's our pathway to get back to normal. It feels so bad that it's been forced but, into that difficult position. Well, <laughs> I, but if they push it too hard, then there'll be resistance from some people who, who just object to the, the idea of... Uh, that kind of thing unfortunately and as, as i was saying we've got to get 70 percent maybe 80 percent coverage in the population in order to be able to go back to normal we all want to see the border open again flights starting up again children going back to school don't need to work from home restaurants open in the evenings all those things yeah we can do that once the vaccine coverage gets to a high level but i can imagine if if we're only able to get a low level of vaccine coverage if all the vaccines that the government's purchased are not going to be used then we're going to be stuck for another year or two 
with all of these social distancing measures. And I, I really hope that won't happen. I, I hope that ultimately people will... But is there will, a possibility of the government rolling out like a mandatory vaccination scheme? I, I don't think mandatory vaccination would be a very good idea. I think that will make things very difficult because of the issue that you mentioned that once the government starts to insist, then, yeah. then people really start to resist. Uh, it'd be better to incentivize it. And I, I think in other countries, one thing they've talked about is... is saying that you can't fly on airplanes until you've been vaccinated that's an incentive because yeah. everyone wants to do that yeah. so so i don't know if that would be one way around it they could, they could do that for like menus in restaurants you gotta have this menu for this yeah. price you gotta eat vegetarian unless yeah, you take the, the vaccine the bagel is 25 dollars for non-vaccinated people is 20 for vaccinated <laughs> that's the yeah. most hong oh. kong thing ever <laughs> yeah they're like so, oh it's also going to take time. So I think Pfizer talked about delivering 1 million doses maybe every month or so, February, March, April, May, June, July. Yeah. So it's going to take quite some time for, for the coverage to be able to get to that high level. At least so, two-thirds. And, but right. there's also yeah, we some need, issue with AstraZeneca now, right? They're, AstraZeneca's they're, delayed. Pfizer may be delayed. Um, and then there's the possibility of the Chinese vaccines. But I'm a little bit concerned Cinemac about the, the won't Chinese be delayed. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a little bit concerned because I was saying to you that we need to get a high level of immunity in the population to get herd immunity yeah. and so the coverage times the vaccine efficacy so you know 80 percent coverage of pfizer efficacy of 95 percent. you times those two together you get 70 something that's good enough but whatever coverage you get with a vaccine that's got 50 percent efficacy the maximum immunity level you can get in the population is like 50 percent is it worth everybody. trying to vaccinate people with that so I, I mean you can offer the choice but i don't think it'd be good for hong kong if we have most people getting Sinovac. I think if some people get it, it's okay. But I think we should really aim to get the majority of the population with a very effective vaccine, like the Pfizer vaccine. And then other people, if they prefer the Sinovac, that's fine. We can still reach herd immunity. But if we go for Sinovac first, uh, it's going to be difficult to get herd immunity. And I really want to see us get herd immunity in Hong Kong. Has the government done enough to secure the vaccines in a timely manner? Oh, they've, they've placed all these advanced orders. So they had ordered it months ago before we really knew how effective the vaccines were. That's taking a risk because you might be placing an order for a vaccine that's not really very good. So that that was fine. Now we're struggling to get the doses. And I heard the European Union is thinking about banning export of vaccines because they want them first. Uh, and we're, of course, getting Pfizer vaccine from Europe, from Germany. So if they have an export ban, that's bad news for us. We're going to have to wait. So that all affect, I thought that would just affect AstraZeneca. So that no, affects that's Pfizer, Pfizer as well. That's the Pfizer wow. that's in a warehouse in Germany, ready to be sent to Hong Kong. And it, Damn, those it's be Germans. Like a, a new parallel <laughs> market happening. Uh, this one has no warranty. Yeah. This one has a warranty. I'd, we should I'd, just get I'd, the Africans in LKF who haven't been able to work for so long to start dishing out <laughs> vaccines, you yeah, know, yeah, black yeah, like, market pfft, vaccines. Pfft. I don't think there would be an export ban, but it's it's a concern, obviously, that yeah, they're talking about yeah. it. Because um, that's a really big impact. I mean, an export ban like that is not just Hong Kong. It's like the rest of the world. Everyone of course. Like, Singapore is using the Pfizer vaccine as well. Yeah. Other parts of the world are using it. And so if you if you hold it to the European Union for maybe a few months, that's going to that's gonna slow everywhere else down. Wow. And um, people start flying, and it's gonna, the issue is going to sh- compound again. I mean, you yeah. start letting people fly, they go to Singapore, whatever, they quarantine, right. they quarantine, they come back again infected. So I, yeah, I, I, I feel like we're not going to be able to, to leave Hong Kong for most of 2021. I think we already heard New Zealand say their border is going to be closed. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to being able to fly again and, and visit my family in the UK. And uh, this is going to be so weird. Like the first time in a long time, people are going to be on a plane. They're like, ah, so we've landed. Uh, can I sit for another five minutes? Yeah. I miss this feeling. <laughs> I'm going to be like, oh, please give me some airline yeah. food. I tell want a little the, tray. Yeah, tell the pilot to do, do another turn, please. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that's been trialed in Hong Kong recently is these ambush uh, lockdowns. You know, lockdowns where yeah. they come in and they say, all right, everybody in these three blocks is unable to leave their apartment, unable to leave. Is this useful that's such a child predator thing to do like you're going nowhere it's a little suspicious <laughs> yeah yeah i don't think the branding is quite right at the moment i don't think calling an ambush lockdown is is gonna be very appealing to to the people that are to the then kind of locked in their homes what we heard about last night was 300 people tested to find one case and i think today most likely there's going to be 50 60 cases so that's an awful lot of effort just to find one out of 60 cases today. Uh, I think if they invested the same amount of resources in tracking down the contacts of the known cases, maybe in a better way, a more efficient way, then probably we'd be able to get on top of transmission more quickly. But contact tracing has been difficult as well. You remember in the early days of the fourth wave, yeah. there was the ballroom cluster, the ballroom yeah. dancing cluster, yeah. where contact tracing really wasn't very effective because those 
uh, cases yeah. didn't really want to say where they'd been, what they'd been doing because of privacy concerns, which we understand. Yeah. yeah. So then it's difficult because if you can't find out who might have been affected, it's only a week later that that you know one of the, the cases goes to the sanatorium for dialysis and says yeah. oh actually by the way my yeah, wife was, was a case a, yeah, yeah, yeah right and they're like oh what yeah you're you know? in the hospital why are you not like, in quarantine yeah, yeah, yeah like your wife was a case yeah and it, oh dear so so that's been a problem all along and i i think it's still a problem now that we're not getting that much information from the contact tracing are they doing worse than other places with contract uh, tracing? Di- different places do it in different ways so in, in the uk they've tried it and it's really really difficult in, in europe in the us they've got the app from google or from apple but people aren't really using it because again of privacy concerns in singapore they're doing it better than we do it here but that's because they're using all of the the resources available to the state in singapore meaning the police databases, the CCTV footage, mobile phone tracking and whatever. And in Hong Kong, the government hasn't gone that far. In mainland China, they're really experts at doing that as well. Oh, they, what a shocker. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> so when there was a case in, in, a, in a city, you know, they could figure out exactly where that person had been all 24 hours of every single day, which bus they'd been on, who was around them on the bus. What they'd been thinking. What, well, not whether, but what, they, what they'd been doing <laughs> yeah. and who they'd been in proximity with. And then all those people could have been tracked down and quarantined. And so it's really disruptive to those maybe strangers yeah. to be quarantined just because they were on the bus next to a case. Man. But that's the way to stop it, right? If you don't do that, then you end up having to do what we're doing in Hong Kong, which is the social distancing with the bar that closure could, and all the other stuff. Yeah. That would totally ruin someone's life if, like, let's say I was on a bus, right? And you guys don't know me. And I was the one, and I'm the case that caused you getting quarantined. You will track me down. You'd be like, this guy is, is in trouble now. Like, 14 days later, like, this guy. And you get this guy. For 14 days, I was stuck in a room because of this guy. Oh, and the, the, the conditions to stay in are horrible, right? Well, that as well. So why does Hong Kong keep getting outbreaks when places like Taiwan and Australia and New Zealand I mean, and Singapore have it under control? Why do I, we keep? Why does it keep done getting a good enough job? I how mean, does it I, keep getting back in when it's, we? Yeah. Get, it's tough to keep the virus out. So we got down to zero a few times, and Taiwan, of course, Singapore, New Zealand—they've all been at zero for, for for quite some time. But they've had outbreaks from time to time when maybe a pilot comes in with infection and doesn't stay at home. Um, in Hong Kong, we've had an issue with uh, the. I think the maritime crew came up in a yeah, ship. That, that was, was the third, third wave. wave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Third wave. And then... They were, they were quarantine-free, right? They were just coming in. Just yeah. Well, look, but, but what would you expect, right? I mean, you've got yeah. so many ships coming into Hong Kong every day. Yeah. There's going to be some interpersonal contact between the people on the ship yeah. and people in Hong Kong. Yeah. They've got to hand over some documents. They've got to... I don't know. The, the harbor pilot's got to get on board and pilot the ship and, and help it to get into the channel or whatever. There's always going to be opportunities for spread, however you do it. Um, and then in the fourth wave, there was maybe a leak from from the hotel quarantine. So it's always going to be difficult to, to keep it at zero for a long time. We can keep it at zero for a bit, but it's going to be difficult to keep it at zero for a long time. And in Hong Kong, because we're so interconnected with other places, we've got a big port. The airports had a lot of people coming in in the past. Not now, but in the past. It's kind of difficult, I think. I, we we but, really but hope to get to zero. But isn't that true of all these other places that have it under control? Yeah, I don't know how Taiwan's managed. Maybe, I don't know, they're further away from, from other places. Maybe they've done a better job at the port and they've done a better job with the, the quarantine than we have here. Uh, New Zealand is just kind of keeping to itself. I, I think they've really cut down travel a lot. So there's not many opportunities for the virus to get in in the first place compared to maybe Hong Kong. But uh, it's, it, it's just difficult. Because like, I think what's, what the mood now is that everyone's getting frustrated as in what's the point of even, even me taking care? I mean, this is just going to keep happening. So I'm also just going with my life, which is we talked about earlier on why people are going out more now. Because everyone's just at a point of like, you know what? I've been sitting at home. I've been trying to be good. But if other people are going to be, you know, dancing around, going to hospitals without even letting people know, then forget it. I'm just going to go on with my life now. Yeah, That's the pandemic fatigue. That's exactly yeah. what we're seeing. It, we're going to be facing this struggle for another six months or nine months, I guess. Uh, I don't think the cases are going to stay at low, stay at zero for long, even if we get to zero now. Uh, and when the case numbers get high, if we see 100 cases a day again, that's when people are going to start getting a little bit worried and the government's going to have to tighten measures again. Because in the fourth wave, when we had a, a week or two with 100 cases a day, hospitals were really starting to struggle for bed space. And just, for, just at 100 cases a day. 100 cases a day, exactly. And that was just for a few days. And it could have gone way above that if, we, if the government didn't act, if people didn't stay at home. It could have gone 200 cases a day, 400 cases a day. You know, it just keeps going up and up and up. There's so many people in Hong Kong that, that could get infected. Um, the, the whole population's still susceptible, essentially. I think we've had 10,000 cases so far, maybe a few more infections that haven't been picked up. 
in 7.5 million people. Almost everybody is still completely susceptible to COVID. And so if, if COVID is allowed to spread, we could see a lot of infections. It'd be like a wildfire, right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it, it takes time. But the cases just steadily go up and up and up. So go from 100 cases a day, and then it's 200 a week or two later, and then it's 400. And, and I really don't want to see that happen. So what do you want people to know? Uh, so for now, just keep going with uh, staying at home, avoiding contact. I know it's tough, but we've got to see the case numbers come down. We can relax once the case numbers get to a low level. And when vaccines are available, please think not only of yourself, but of everybody else. It's our pathway back to normal for people to get vaccinated. And if, if almost all of us in Hong Kong agree to get vaccinated, then I think we can talk about getting back to normal. Until then, it's going to be difficult for the government to, to allow things to return to normal because of the danger of a lot of infections occurring and then, and then the same thing that, that we've been talking about, that hospitals struggle for space. Um, so I personally, I really don't like needles, but I'm still going to get the COVID I vaccine. I hate needles. Yeah, I hate needles. I hate, actually hate needles. <laughs> but I'm going to get the vaccine because it, it's kind of a responsibility, a social responsibility. That so would you say for the vaccine choice, just to give people more insight into it, you talked earlier on the 60, uh, two-thirds, uh, 66%, right? So if a vaccine has been proved to be, let's say, 66% or above uh, yep. effective, then that would give people confidence of like, okay, this is something I could consider. Definitely, would, right? definitely. That would be the issue. So exactly. I think using the percentages would I just give you a better idea than the brand. Yeah, you know how Hong Kong people think. Yeah. You Throw a few numbers at them. I mean, it would be like the parents going like, you either give me the 100% full marks or none at all. Yeah. I don't do this. this yeah, we want an A+. Plus. I don't want yeah. to get an <laughs> F on my <laughs> vaccination. Exactly. Ideally, we'd like to give everybody the Pfizer vaccine, I think. But people, some people are a little bit nervous because it's such a new technology. It's a new type of vaccine. Because it's mRNA, mRNA right? vaccine, which is a new thing. And Sinovac is... So Pfizer and AstraZeneca are mRNA which Fi- Pfizer is mRNA and there's another one called Moderna in the US oh, which, is also, the, which yeah, is also yeah. mRNA but AstraZen- AstraZeneca is a different type it's also a new technology but it's been used before for some other vaccines they've kind of mixed together two viruses they mixed together uh, a common cold virus with COVID and then grown it up and they inject you with dead virus and then your body can pick up the COVID part of that. Uh, and so it's a safe way to grow the virus. I don't think you should tell people that if you're trying it's, to get it's a It's kind of a way to do it. It's, it's, it's not only done for COVID. It's done for other infections as well, for other vaccines as well. And Cinemac so is an old technology, right? Cinemac is the old technology where they just grow COVID in the lab. And then they inactivate it. They kill it. And then inject you with the dead virus. And that's a way to stimulate your, your body to respond. But it doesn't work so well. So the Sinovac and Sinopharm are probably the least effective of all the vaccines available. And then beyond that, better than that is the AstraZeneca one. And maybe some of the other ones that we're hearing about, the Novovac and the Johnson & Johnson. We haven't heard the results yet, but I would guess they're in the middle. And then the best ones seem to be Pfizer and Moderna. So my opinion, the more people we can give either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine in Hong Kong, the better because that's going to give us a chance to get to herd immunity with even a slightly lower vaccine coverage. AstraZeneca should be okay if we can get, get a high coverage. So maybe give a lot of people Pfizer and the remainder can get AstraZeneca or maybe some can get Sinovac if they want to. And that's the way we can get herd immunity. I mean, a really good way to get people to want to get it, even if they didn't want to, is have a line outside where people are getting it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's the line for? Exactly. Once there's a line, what that's everyone queue up. Dude, dude, I, love yeah. the, I love the fact that China's like, it is ridiculous to su- ju- suggest that we grew COVID in a lab. How did you make your vaccine? Well, we grew COVID in a lab. That was <laughs> Yeah, but we deactivated it. We're like, no, no, bad COVID. We hit it on the nose. Sure, we did it that time. But... Yeah. Um, so what are people getting wrong? What are, what, are, what are we misunderstanding? Uh, there's this obsession with face masks in Hong Kong, which I think is over the top. So we have mandatory... Says the guy wearing a face mask. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a room, right? Yeah. I, I, I live by a country park. I go out in the country park sometimes at weekends, and there's people like in the middle of nowhere wearing their mask. It doesn't make any sense to me because there's no way you're going to get COVID standing on the top of a mountain with nobody else around. Basically, outdoors, COVID doesn't really spread. Now, if you're in like in a busy part of Soho or Mong Kok and there's a crowd around at the bus stop, you can still imagine transmission occurring just because of maybe bad luck. But in the countryside, we really don't need to be wearing masks. I I don't understand why outdoor sports are are being discouraged because it's a good way to keep people active. and, And we really haven't seen any evidence of transmission outdoors. So that's something that I think is is it could be improved in Hong Kong. 
Um, but I think we're doing a lot of things right. We've been wearing masks since the beginning, indoors, in crowded areas. Other parts of the world have in taken months. Night. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that, but yeah, I mean, we've been wearing a lot of masks since the beginning, and other countries have taken a, a lot of when time to come When you run out of foundation that. and you're going to bed, you're like, I'm wearing a mask so I look good tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not messing around with that. So, you know, we were talking the other day because I have uh, unusual facial hair, and <laughs> I have kids, uh, and we go to the kindergarten, and there's people I see every day who've never seen my facial hair, and it's really weird when you meet you you can know people for months yeah, now, yeah yeah and they take off their mask and you're mask and you're like well, that, that's what you look like <laughs> yeah okay um <laughs> i kind of want to go backwards now uh, hold on a second i gotta tell you <laughs> the average attract the average perceived attractiveness of people in this city yeah. is way up in face masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh definitely <laughs> definitely man i mean so the the outdoor sports thing so this is nothing i'm actually curious about so we're being stopped for, let's say, outdoor activities or sports and stuff in general. People's health are going down as well. Like even myself, I'm, like, I, I'm not exercising. Affecting their immunity, right? Yeah, yeah, our immunity in general. So is that another f- uh, byproduct factor that we have to uh, kind of I think, think when we about? look back at the experience in COVID, we're going to see a lot of impacts on, on health and also on mental health. I know yeah. a lot of people are feeling lonely and, and really not feeling as well as they had in the past just because of all the social distancing and in Hong Kong it, it's important that people eat out all the time and restaurants have been closed and I, I, another thing that, that I think maybe could be done a little bit better is spreading out people so I said before we have got to avoid crowding in Hong Kong a lot of people don't eat at home they want to eat in restaurants so now they're getting well, takeaway really I mean like well, your home is like 100 square foot right you know? so, so actually one of the things I, I thought maybe the government should have considered instead of banning dining in the evening like encourage restaurants to go 24 hour Encourage people to go late. Maybe you limit the capacity to say you can't have more than 50% occupancy in the restaurant to keep the crowd to a, a lower level. Yeah. But, but there's open always for an longer. opportunity to go out. Right. Open for longer. Open after midnight. Uh, I'm sure people will be willing to go late. Oh, absolutely. Right? You mean, have the happy hour at five and you have a happy hour at midnight. Yeah. And, and that's it, a way to, to kind of get by and help the restaurants as well because I, I don't think closing at six is, is, yeah, is maybe the best really thing. I thought the, end, the reason was because the Hong Kong government made statements that people are uh, less careful when they're drunk. Well, that, that may be a, another issue. And I think certainly for bars, it's a problem when there's a lot of people crowding together and they're not wearing masks. And so I, I understand the rationale for closing bars when there's a lot of cases in the community. But restaurants, everyone needs to eat you know, a few times a day. And so uh, maybe for drinking, it's a leisure activity. But for eating in restaurants, I... I, I if you're worried about people being drunk, you can you can talk about limiting alcohol consumption. But I, I really think that, that we should consider in future waves keeping restaurants open, maybe limit the capacity, but even longer service hours to reduce the crowding, but to still let people eat out. Yeah, I guess you could like reduce alcohol consumption and sugar consumption. Sugar highs are also bad. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah I, I start slobbering on people <laughs> yeah, when know, I have too, many, too much, too many cho- <laughs> too much chocolate. Yeah, exactly. Um, are people in Hong Kong overprotective by sanitizing everything all the time? Uh, it's a good question. We still don't understand how much COVID spreads through the environment, but I, I think it's, it's a reasonable practice. It's better to be safe than sorry. So when you've been out touching the handrails in the bus or the MTR definitely sanitize your hands uh, we haven't seen a lot of definite occurrence of transmission that way but at the same time maybe we wouldn't know it you know there's so many unlinked cases every day maybe that's one of the ways it has been spreading so sanitizing I think is a good idea when I go in restaurants now I see they always have the thermometer you check your temperature when you go in and by the side sometimes there's the alcohol but it's often out of the way how I feel useless like that w- are those temperature checkers yeah it'd be better the other way around it would be better if everyone's like really has to do the alcohol when they come in the restaurant and the temperature check is there as well but I think the alcohol is the most important part of that let me ask you this when you do the temperature check do you use your hand or do you use your forehead uh, it depends on the height of the check I quite often like doing my forehead on it I kind of lean into it yeah. other times I do my hand but I don't think those things are very accurate yeah. just so inaccurate well, I, like was, I was putting like 34 yeah, degrees like 27. I'm like man I, I gotta get know. better blood no, circulation. Know. It, it does remind us that if we were to have a fever we really shouldn't be going out and i suppose that, uh, that's a useful thing to remind people about um yeah if you're like right. oh, this one's broken it said i'm 37.5 yeah also this one also yeah. this yeah, one they're all broken yeah. maybe you might yeah. have a temperature right you better be careful because it's yeah yeah so hand sanitization that's one i mean i also noticed a lot of habits as in oh there are people who they'll sanitize their hands and touch stuff i mean it's kind of like they've done it but in the wrong order because I know like the, the teaching in the beginning was like, okay, before you take your mask off, you sanitize your hands, you take your mask off, put the mask in a safe, cleanish place, and then sanitize your hands again. 
Yeah. And then touch your food or drinks or whatever. Then every time you, before you touch your mask, you sanitize your hands so you don't dirty the mask and infect the mask itself, right? I think it's both ways. In, in, in a hospital, certainly it would be both ways. But you've got to imagine the mask is getting a little bit contaminated. If it's Each doing time. the job, yeah. then it may be getting a little bit contaminated. On so the you've got to be careful. And actually what you see in restaurants quite often, people will use the alcohol at the door, go in and sit down. And then they'll take their mask off and be touching it put it in the envelope or whatever yeah. and then they'll start eating without sanitizing their hands again and that's a little bit risky because yeah. if the mask had actually protected you from getting covid you know maybe maybe you were you were exposed that day on the bus or something yeah then maybe you've just infected yourself yeah, yeah by yeah. doing that I, I don't think it happens very often but i think that really we need to be careful with masks got to remember that if they're working then they may be contaminated so when do you think covid's gone fully gone I don't know if it's ever going to completely go, actually. So, so there's common colds we have every year. And a, a number of viruses that cause common colds are actually types of coronaviruses. And I think COVID is going to become another one of those in 10, 20 years time. We're going to look back and it's going to be a common cold virus. Uh, not so much because it's changed its severity, but just because we've all either been vaccinated or we've been infected. And so after that point, it it's really becomes a milder infection. And there's actually some evidence that this is what happened with one of those common cold viruses about a hundred and something years ago. How that, different is our experience from historical pandemics with for technology and, and communication? Uh, it's, it's very different. So the, the biggest pandemic that we really know a lot about was the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic that killed 50 million people around the world in a space of one or two years. And that's remarkable. I mean, now we've got a million deaths from COVID and it, it's, uh, it's already been really, really tough. But you think about the Spanish flu that killed 50 million people. Imagine what that would have been like. So many families losing uh, family members. And also the population of the globe was much lower back then. Much lower back then as well. And it was after the First World War. So, so there's a lot of reasons why, why it was so devastating. But, um, I mean, we could have experienced something like that if the governments around the world hadn't acted so quickly. You imagine if they have... 10 times, 100 times the number of infections, then you, you times the death count by that. And you can see how we could quickly get up to a lot of deaths from COVID. So we've done really well now compared to what happened in 1918. Um, but it's tough to keep it going. And vaccines are our way out. What's your worst case scenario? Uh, so one of the things I'm worrying about is that we have a lot of vaccines available for somewhere like Hong Kong, but people just don't want to take it for some reason. Maybe there's been media scares about how our vaccines work. And then we're stuck in kind of limbo. So we got the way out by, by getting everyone vaccinated, but people don't want to get vaccinated. And then we're stuck with schools closed, with the airport still uh, kind of restricted, very heavily restricted, with quarantine for people coming in and that lasting for another two, three, four years. I really don't want to think that's going to happen. Um, but the government won't have a choice. If people don't get vaccinated, then we need to do the social distancing because we can't allow COVID to spread freely in Hong Kong. Even with 100 cases a day, the hospitals are struggling. And if COVID spreading freely, we'll quickly exceed that. Wow, social distancing in Hong Kong is going to be the ultimate strategy, I would say. I mean, also the ultimate challenge, because first of all, you'd either have to quota people and say, okay, you are A, you are B, so A can go up between, let's say, 1 to 5, and B can go up between 6 to 10, something like that. Would that even be possible? I, I don't think so. I don't think we can sustain it for that much longer. You've seen already people are very tired of it. And so that, that's why I really want to see high, high vaccine coverage uh, towards the middle, towards the second half of this year. Uh, that would be the ideal. And my, 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 my worry is that maybe we, we can't get that for some reason. And I, I really hope that won't happen. You know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see high nose coverage. A lot of people wear their face masks with the nose popped out. They pull it down. Yeah. yeah I know, that. I know. Well, you know, I, I'll tell you something. I, uh, my falls down a lot because, I don't know, maybe I have a big nose, but also I'm often carrying a kid. Yeah. And like I literally, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll be trying to pull it up. Like I yeah, don't yeah. walk around with it down. Yeah, yeah. But I'll be carrying a kid with two hands and I and it yeah, you just can't falls help yeah, down, yeah, you know? Yeah, it slips, yeah, I get it, I get it. And yeah, yeah. sometimes people are glaring at me. It's like, I don't think you realize how hard it is to <laughs> carry a child, you know, 25-kilogram tw kid yeah. when you've got both hands... I normally just carry the whole comedy show, so I don't really know. Ah, what okay, very last question for the free episode here. Is there a personal paradox for you in the fact that your job is so important right now? Like, isn't this kind of great for you? professionally yeah. uh, it's, it's scientifically is fascinating but also it's really really stressful because you know all the disruption to people's lives and so i feel like 
You can, can be. I have to do as much I as I can. I won't tell anyone. You I can have to do as you. much as I can to help. Um, and it, it's kind of tough. I feel the pressure of you know what what kind of advice should I talk about restaurants being open in the evenings? But then if I if I recommend if the government adopts that and then it turns out there's some outbreaks, is that kind of my fault? So I got this pressure as well about trying to give sensible advice that turns out to be useful and helpful. And I, I, I can feel that pressure. But it scientifically is totally fascinating for someone like me who's been studying infectious diseases for, for more than 10 years. I, you know, been on the lookout for something like this. And now the chance to study it is, uh, yeah, professionally, it's really, really interesting. And I'm glad that my, my skills can be of use. Do you think this period of time can really affect the trajectory of your whole career? Uh, sure. I, I think uh, so. In the university, Hong Kong University is very strong in, in research on infectious diseases already. And this has shown, I think we've shown the world what the value is in investing in this kind of research. What's the value in investing in all kinds of research areas in infectious diseases. And so for my research area, I, I think it's really going to be good that we'll be able to study more about flu vaccines, about other kinds of vaccines, about public health measures in the event of other pandemics. Maybe we could do a better job with flu every year. So a lot of things we can really learn. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning even more about COVID in, in, in the coming year and then being able to contribute. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and info today. I mean, it's been fascinating. Um, I'd love to ask you in three more hours of questions, but um, I really appreciate it and I hope we can get there. <laughs> <laughs>